Welcome to the Building and Growing Podcast. We're delighted to have Alia Mahmood from Comply Advantage with us today. Hi, Lucas. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for joining us, Alia, on a a lovely sort of spring evening here in London. We are lucky. We're lucky the weather has warmed up. That's right. That's right. And look, we're particularly lucky. This is your second speaking engagement of the day. You've been at Innovate Finance today. So uh, we're we're very pleased that you've got the time and the energy for us. Anything for you. It's like the Revolut Bond. (laughs) That's it. That's it. This is a Revolut Mafia. And uh, look, I mean, I think it's a great way to sort of intro. Um, uh, 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 let me sort of pre-intro you. Um, uh, you know, Aaliyah comes from a compliance background and I was uh, in a sort of growth background. And, you know, I think it's sometimes rare that compliance and growth get on so well. Absolutely. Um, but it's very important. So. It is so important, that collaboration and that partnership. Um, and that's what compliance is all about, not being that roadblocker, but actually... HSBC had this really right. So if I, I'm just jumping into this. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. If we'll, I, if I, we'll, we'll do your intro in a sec. We're jump into jumping the story, into yeah. this. But I, when I was back in the day, when I was at HSBC, they called like your compliance officers as the stewards of the business. Wow. So yeah. you know we're clearing the way and making it easy for you to grow, for you to scale as a business. And Revolut did it really well. They called us partners, right? So yeah. partners with the business, and we measured against that as well. That's right. Yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah. And it, you know, I mean, no person in a growth uh, role wants to bring in things that are going to then like take up the time of the compliance business and prevent um, you know genuine good clients from getting on board Absolutely. and so having that filter and that full alignment is fantastic it but is. anyway let's jump into you so okay. tell us about yourself Alia. So I've um, in a previous life before joining Comply Advantage have been in various risk and compliance roles started off at HSBC like my first kind of compliance gig, really getting a feel of what is financial crime compliance, what is regulatory compliance, Mm -hmm. and then the kind of overall global banking, commercial banking, those products. Um, And HSBC was a great place to do that kind of learning because you have really good leaders. There's a great kind of diversity involved. And it's not in every tier one, but HSBC had it down really good. And after six years, like close to six years, I needed a challenge. So Mm -hmm. at that point, I moved into an Arab bank, um, Qatar National Bank, which has a whole different range of risks because you're a foreign branch in the UK and you're you're regulated to the UK standards and you're doing correspondent banking, which is, you know, again, high risk activity. And I was the deputy MLRO, so a lot of responsibility, needing to make sure people were doing things the right way. But also understanding why why they have to do it that way. Yeah, and yeah. Um, Qatar National Bank was great, but it's it's that legacy technology. It's all that you know. When you think of incumbents, it's you know just outdated technology, manual processes. Yes, it, I wasn't learning anything new. A point came where I was like, look tech is the new big thing, mm. digital payments, digital transformation, and I knew I just had to get myself into a place which was kind of tech savvy and tech focused. So Revolut came about after that, which was amazing. That's where we met. Yeah. Um, We had our Toastmaster sessions. That's right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And Revolut was awesome because, as you know, it was hyperscale. It is, I think, even I've seen like, you know, lots of fintechs and they're doing great things. 
but they're not as transformative as Revolut was Indeed. back, you know, eight years ago when they started out. Like really just tapping into those unmet customer needs, mm. needs that even a, a consumer didn't know that they had when yes. it came to managing their money. And when you're in a risk and compliance function in kind of that hyperscale startup which is now kind of like you know super app revolute yeah you need to just respond so quick to things it's like you know you've seen it yourself products are coming out you know product governance is happening but at the same time you're doing your monitoring and testing and it was great but a point does come where again you need to change and i'm I'm always one where when i get comfortable i need to move out of my comfort zone and I was really keen. I like the kind of startup vibe. I like being able to support founders on their mission and their journey because I always admire how founders can take like an idea and it's literally just an idea from inception to actually making it something concrete and have consumers use it and consumers love it. And I knew that I was good at compliance. So I joined an ethical fintech after Revolut. sole mission for me there bit selfish but hey ho gotta be selfish in life sometimes but (laughs) i i wanted to see what that whole authorization process was with the fca how do you get a fintech authorized how do you get it to become an e-money institution build out those financial crime controls from scratch and it's a huge job it's a huge job and it's really fun when you're doing it but then once it's done it's it's the (laughs) bau and the bau is something which i always found interesting but it it can get just draining as well and there's always that when it comes to hyper growth organizations you need resources you need skilled people and that's a challenge in the current economy and uh what you know once i did that i was like okay they're good to go you know they're gonna they're gonna fly and soar and take off I needed something that would satisfy me and my needs of mm-hmm. making an impact. And that's where Comply Advantage came in. Fantastic. And just a little bit about Comply Advantage. Yeah, yeah, uh, so Comply Advantage is a technology company that provides financial crime solutions mm-hmm. to fintechs, regulated uh, institutions, financial service companies. And what's special about Comply Advantage is that they play a very key role in making sure your financial system is safe and sound because we're helping companies identify those financial crime risks so that they can prevent it Mm -hmm. and we do this through our proprietary data so data around individuals organizations screening transaction monitoring and I know we're going to get into a bit more of that later on Uh, (laughs) so for me it's the impact I can have in an organization like that is just Mm -hmm. something I'd never get whilst working in a fintech or a financial service company. But also one thing that reg tech companies lack uh, is that diversity of thought, people from diverse backgrounds who understand the challenges that Mm. these type of reg tech products can have on actually excluding people from financial services. So again, for me, it was just making sure that those products don't have bias involved in them. Mm. They are not excluding certain customers because you can't get granular when it comes to fuzzy matching algorithms or adverse news screening. And I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, that's fantastic. And look, I mean, I think one of the things that reg techs also don't have or startups in general sometimes don't have client-side experience and you've had that both at the legacy companies as well as the fintechs Um, and the sort of point that you touched upon in terms of um, you know making uh, reg tech more accessible I think is 
very interesting because people don't think about you know the underbanked necessarily exactly. if they don't have very good pixels on their phone when they're taking a photo of their ID. What what effect will that have later absolutely, on? Absolutely, absolutely, and that is just that's so key because technology needs to be used for good and you can't just think about your kind of consumer up to date you need to think about the less affluent the ones that actually need those financial services not just for buy now pay later on your you know kind of Montclair coat but Mm. those that need to kind of pay bills they need to get a refrigerator to store food in because you know their refrigerator is broken down they need to get beds for their children to sleep on Mm. and you know with the current kind of um economic climate that we're all living in we're all feeling that pain firms are feeling the pain too so they need reg tech that's affordable it does the job it does it well but also once you've implemented that technology you have people who are going to support you throughout your kind of relationship with with the reg tech provider and vendor indeed indeed fantastic well look let's dive in a level deeper into sort of what reg tech is and i was thinking about you know how best to do this in terms of maybe giving a couple of definitions to people who might not be familiar with the space. You know, we could either go with you uh, listing out, uh, you know, the definitions one by one, or we could do sort of quick elevator pitches where I yell out a key okay. word and, you know, you shout out a definition. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's start off with KYC. Know your customer. You need to know who you're doing business with. Mm-hmm. And and so for a consumer that's, you know, taking a photo of your ID, doing a little video selfie. It is. It is. It is um, proving who you are through documents. And then those documents are going to get independently verified mm-hmm. to make sure that they are not forged documents, that you are actually who you say you are. Uh, but then in addition to that, KYC also touches upon the risks that that uh, that you as an individual might have. So yes. are you a resident in a higher risk country? Is the source of your income through a high risk business? And then if you think about your corporate customers and your you know businesses, um, the KYB, know your business, yes. you know, that gets a bit more nuanced because different business types and different industries will have different risks. You even have different risks when it comes to the kind of legal entity structure. So Mm. private limited companies are more riskier than your public limited companies because they have more transparency, they have more reporting um, to shareholders and investors. And then limited liability companies are even more riskier because their liability is limited. So again, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, but the key there is you need to know who you're doing business with, Mm. you need to know their risks, and you need to accept those risks. And then you need to treat that customer in accordance to how much of a risk they pose for your business. Um, So doing more enhanced due diligence on your higher risk customers, um, Mm. screening them more frequently, monitoring their transactions um, more frequently. Indeed, indeed. And look, I mean, uh, you know, we certainly met when I was working on the business side. And, uh, you know, it was absolutely fascinating. I I, I learned a lot, um, you know, from you and the team in terms of how businesses can be risky, whether it, whether it's, you know, let's say from the ownership perspective of having multiple layers of ownerships or trusts wherein um, you assign ownership to uh, a different individual yeah. or an entity, yeah. the fact that some directors may not be resident in the country that you're yeah. opening up yeah. a bank account in, yeah. um, 
politically exposed individuals. Absolutely. Yeah. You're doing my job for me. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not giving the, uh, the definitions, uh, uh, but let's dive into that one. Okay. A politically exposed person. So politically exposed people are individuals that have a, a public office or a position of power um, in governments or state-owned bodies. Yes. Um, it could even be religious organizations. Or if you think about um, Rome and the Roman Catholic Church, you can mm. have peps involved there. And it's not just the the PEP individual themselves. You can have PEP entities, so okay. state-owned entities, state-owned banks, for example, state-owned utility companies, yes. depending on the jurisdiction you're you're in. And then also their relatives and close associates are also to be treated as a high risk because essentially when you're speaking of PEPs, and you, the, the abbreviation is PEP, like the acronym is PEPs, mm. the, the risk there is that they could commit offenses of bribery and corruption. Yes. Um, yes. So use their kind of position of power to their advantage, but yes. then to the disadvantage of others, or just unfairly um, use their power to, to get influence or to do favors for other people. And they're always treated as higher risk and you really need to understand where their source of funds come from and how they've accumulated their source of wealth and yes. whether it makes sense that if they are an MP earning, I don't know what the MP salary, I think it was recently increased to maybe 100K or a bit shy of 100K, yes. but they're declaring like close to a million. Well, Indeed, where, what are yeah. those other interests that they have from where this, this money's coming from? Yes, and what sort of implications could a financial institution have if they had a politically exposed person who was found to have received um, uh, some, let's say, questionable funds. So it, it would be the the facilitating bribery and corruption. Okay. So receiving the kind of proceeds of crime from bribery and corruption, yes. potentially not having done enough customer due diligence or enhanced due diligence on that relationship, yes. not asking the right questions. So again, that kind of customer engagement and outreach wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And uh, essentially, uh, you'd you could block the transaction, so you could be quite good in terms of detecting the risk, and you you've blocked the transaction. Yes, but but if you don't block the transaction, then you're just basically allowing the the kind of proceeds of crime to flow through, and it could be um, cross border payments that are being made. It could be payments made to sanctioned individuals. Yes. So the the risk can kind of move away from bribery and corruption through to money laundering, through to sanctions invasions even through to terrorist financing. Indeed, indeed. And these are, I think, key, key words that we yeah, need to dive yeah. into. So um, um, should, we, should we start with um, transaction monitoring and then okay. go, go into the heavier, yeah. heavier uh, uh, pieces after? All right, let's do that. Let's yeah. start with the easy stuff for us. So tra- <laughs> transaction monitoring is where you are, you're literally monitoring your customer's transactional behavior, yes. how much is coming into the account, how much is going out to the account, who who are who's making the payments? Who are the beneficiaries of the payments? What countries are those payments going to? Mm-hmm. And also now, if you think about kind of the digital, the digital channels through which payments can be made, well, what are those channels? Are they being made via your mobile? Is yes. it an ATM kind of deposit, cash deposits that are being made? Uh, crypto? Is it a virtual asset that's being used? Yes. And the, the key purpose of transaction monitoring is to be able to identify suspicious trends or suspicious activity. Mm. But you can only do that if you really understand your customer. So going back to the kind of the importance of KYC and KYB, they're all kind of tied together, you know, kind of like in crochet, like a sweater that you're <laughs> knitting. Yes. Everything needs to be, you know, your processes need to be very tight and interconnected. 
the the kind of requirement from a regulator's perspective is once you've identified that suspicious transaction, you need to report it to the financial intelligence units of your yes. country. So over here, it's the National Crime Agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just recently reported that last year they had 901,000 wow. um, suspicious activity reports. Yeah, so you can incredible. just imagine. And that was a 23% increase from the year before, yes. 2021 to 2022. So... But then even then, I'll tell you a kind of crazy fact, only yeah. 1% of money that's laundered through financial systems is detected. Wow. And that's wow. only 1%. That's so little, yeah. yeah. Shivers, eh? I know. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's kind of a KPI for the, the, the crime agency that you mentioned <laughs> to increase that. Increase it. Well, that's yeah. what the economic crime plan is, I guess, that the... You know, we're hearing the Treasury talk about it and our Home Secretary talk about, but what like really confounded me was they wanted to recover one billion yes. um, pounds over ten years. Far out. But the kind of the cost of money laundering to the UK economy is a hundred billion per year. Wow. Wow. So when you think of that one billion, it's like not even a drop in the ocean. Yeah. And yeah. also when you think about how much money was lost through fraud during um COVID and the the pandemic. Indeed. Um, through all these kind of COVID schemes that were exploited by fraudsters, I think it was around 21 billion. Yeah, shivers, yeah. Yeah, a huge more needs to be done. Yeah. yeah, yeah, far out, far I know. out. And I mean, you know, for the banks which helped, well, I don't want to say help facilitate it because they, I'm sure they didn't do it knowingly, but um, if they were implicated in it, then it's a reputational sort of risk for it them. It is, it's a reputational risk. It's... Um, you know, a fine, they, yes. they'll have to pay out. And I think your larger kind of uh, traditional banks and your tier ones and tier twos, for them, it's almost like the cost of doing business. Mm. They, mm. it's, it's, it's just the way things are. And I, and they can pay these fines yes. and they can take the reputational hit because, I mean, if you look at Barclays, even JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank, they've, they've all been in the news, but it's, yeah. it's not slowing down the business. They, yes. they still have customers, but the people it's really going to impact are the fintechs, the startups that are just getting started, still trying to build that consumer confidence yes. and also regulatory confidence. Indeed, indeed. And look, we're, we're going to dive into fintechs uh, 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 in a moment, but um, let's round off with um, sanctions. Sanctions. Our sanctions is... Uh, Sanctions is a pain. Yes. It's a pain for anyone who has to deal with kind of identifying sanctions risks because they're just constantly evolving. And and we've really seen that over kind of the Russia-Ukraine conflict that's been happening. Even recently now, I think the enablers of oligarchs are now being sanctioned. And um, sanctions are very, you see, the the difference between the way I like to look at it between your financial crime is because you've got that moral imperative that you want to stop criminals gaining from their illicit gains, right? You want to deprive them of the the proceeds of crime that they've generated. You also want to stop the crime itself happening because they're victims that are being exploited. Or if you think about environmental crimes, it's our environment, wildlife that's being um, trafficked and harmed. Mm. And sanctions, however, is very politically motivated, right? Yes. So there there could always be kind of like arbitrage between different governments in terms of what sanctions are unilateral, what sanctions are not. Yes. Uh, 
And there's still victims at the end of sanctions as well. When you think of like unilateral sanctions, and we were just talking about Syria for, before we got started. But yeah. I mean, this, the war in Syria was 12 years ago. Yes. And that country is still under unilateral sanctions. And I, I was reading a report by the United Nations that were actually saying we need to lift these sanctions because 90% of the population now in Syria live below the poverty line. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so the, there is a direct impact of sanctions as well, but for financial institutions, fintechs, and any business, actually, you don't even need to be in the fine, fine, you know, kind of financial industry space. As long as you're a business, you need to adhere to that. You need to be able to identify sanctioned individuals and potential evasion. Indeed, indeed. And um, look, uh, 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 two final ones that I've thought of, um, uh, and I've promised, you know, to the audience, we're not just going to do definitions the whole time. <laughs> um, but um, uh, counter-terrorist uh, finance, um, yeah. And then we can round off with ABC. Yeah. So ter- terrorist financing is, you know, as the name implies, it's it's financing of terrorist activities. That now that could be kind of violence. It could also be propaganda, mm. um, and it comes in various forms. You've got right wing terrorists. You've got you know religious based terrorist groups and organizations. Yes. And when it comes to kind of tr- detecting trans, um, terrorist financing from transactional patterns versus money laundering. It's very different because in money laundering, you have three stages of where you're placing the mm-hmm. illicit funds in the financial system. You then layer those funds through different products or transfers in order to obscure the the ownership or the true source behind how those funds were generated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of integrate it. So, you know, you purchase real estate or you, you know, you buy some... Um, Arts and antiques is a great one. And even like luxury watches, you know, yeah. you've seen money laundering happening through that. Terrorist financing, on the other hand, is it could be legitimate activities that um, generate funds for terrorist yeah. financing, like crowdfunding, kind okay. of getting wow. together people who have similar ideologies or, you know, if it's hate ideology, um, having them donate to a so-called legitimate cause through crowdfunding platforms. And then the purpose is to raise funds and then store those funds until they're going to be used, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very different typology than money laundering. And when firms kind of uh, implement um, transaction monitoring rules, they need to be very cognizant of the differences so they can identify it. Yes, fantastic. And look, I, you know, I remember our first conversation ever was on on ABC, um, okay. and you know <laughs> what could be, let's say. Um, uh, offered as an incentive to partners um, as opposed to, you know, what couldn't be. And there are some very sort of red lines um, that uh, I think anybody interested in working for a fintech should know about. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. It takes me back to the Revolut days. So <laughs> I, I mean, because I was the lead for bribery and corruption there. And what we're talking about, what you're talking about now is like the gifts and entertainment policies yes. that firms have. I don't remember what the revolute thresholds were. I try to make them very flexible and, you know, ample. (laughs) Um, But it will vary from firm to firm. So each fintech will have kind of their own, well, what is suitable for taking a client out for dinner, you know, or when it comes to giving gifts, uh, sports events or, you know, entertainment or concerts or even hospitality about flying clients over and then putting them up in a hotel. Yes. It it will differ between firm to firm. But the the idea behind it is you need to declare it. Mm -hmm. Um, You need, you know, everything should be transparent. 
transparent, uh, especially when it comes to your third parties that you're going to be partnering with or doing business with, because the risk there is that there could be favoritism. There could be some form of sway where you are whining and dining a certain client more Mm. than the other to get more favorable rates or more favorable deals. And the question always does come, and I've had this so many times, well, that's how you do business. And whilst that is true, you still need to kind of be transparent about it. So do business the way you're doing it. And let's say it goes above the threshold. um, You then seek senior management approval. So you have that kind of senior manager taking that accountability and saying, I'm okay with this. You know, this is a client that we really want to secure and, you know, we want to treat them well. Yes. Yeah. yeah fantastic. And I think uh, it's yeah, it's super interesting um, because, you know, I remember once I won't, I won't, you know, sort of name uh, clients or any companies who I was working for, but uh, I was having a chat with a particular individual. They shut the door and they said, you know, you think my um, my uh, our daughter can get an internship there? You know. Oh, and that's it. That's yeah, like another yeah. kind of incentive. Um, that was a great one you said. And yeah. and also, if you think of like, if we're thinking of like startups, fintechs trying to enter emerging markets or any company trying to enter emerging markets, especially the more developing countries, mm. the way you do business there is going to be very different from the way you do business in the UK. So yes. it could be that in countries like that a kind of grease payment you know yeah, as, as yeah, they're the called facilitation a facilitation payments. payment is yeah. normal but then again your firm's policies need to prohibit it yes. and bribery and corruption is one of those areas where that policy of yours is going to be looked at by your third parties when they do due diligence on Indeed. you so they're going to want to see you say we prohibit facilitation payments at the end of the day whether they're given or not is a different question right because you've got to do business and you've got to enter a market and you know however that's done sometimes firms just do it um i i guess the 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 risk becomes when you are not being transparent about it so Mm -hmm. it's you know not declaring it yes you know what you're receiving or what you are giving indeed indeed look Fantastic definitions. Thank you so much, Alia. You're um, so one thing that we've touched upon a lot is the fact that there are so many fintechs out there and you know, banks as well, um, so traditional financial institutions, all of them have huge customer bases. They're serving millions. Um, during the pandemic, we saw fintechs in particular on board, you know, thousands and thousands of clients every day. Um, how how are financial institutions doing compliance in, let's say, the, the, the modern world at scale? They've got very good rec tech providers, <laughs> like Apply Advantage. Um, but yeah, it, it's very good technology. And what fintechs do well is that they, you know, everything's cloud-based. Yes. So, you know, it's either it's Google, Google Cloud or Amazon Web Services, Mm -hmm. they can deploy rapidly. They can integrate with a rec tech provider that also provides cloud solutions to deploy and implement rapidly. And everything happens in real time. Mm -hmm. But you need um, technology and infrastructure that supports that. And then also you need skills. So you need people on the ground that are going to be able to kind of manage the alerts and the from screening, your customer screening, your transaction monitoring screening. But then also tech companies are a really better place than your traditional banks because they can build in that machine learning and artificial intelligence if a rec tech's not providing it to them to automate all those kind of lower, you know, level 
manual tasks, which do take up a lot of time. Yes. And, you know, that's the key to scaling and onboarding lots of customers. You you need really good risk identification. You need to make the customer journey frictionless because that's what consumers expect. You know, yes. they want to open an account within seconds. Um, at the same time, you need to do thorough due diligence and be able to kind of automate where you can processes, but then escalate higher risk um, instances that do require a person, a human to actually look and make a judgment on. Yes, indeed. And look, um, uh, just sort of diving into uh, the point about requiring a human to make a judgment, um, The one of the sort of the first um, uh, times, or maybe it was, you know, in my early days um, uh, at Revolut, I, I realized, you know, if you want to understand um, compliance, you've kind of got to think about it like a quiz and you get a score at the end. And, yeah. you know, that score is determined by all of the factors that you mentioned before in the uh, in the um, definitions um, part of the podcast where, you know, it's like, yeah, are they living overseas? Um, uh, if it's a company, you know, is it layered ownership? And the, the higher the score, um, the more likely it is to get escalated to a yes. human. Yeah, so. absolutely. So you're talking about customer risk scoring right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah it's another it. definition. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, I love um, it. <laughs> yeah, I know. So customers need to be, exactly, they need to be risk scored. And the factors, like the main factors you look at for risk factors for a customer is, you know, where are they based, where are they a resident, yeah. um, even tax residents, what other yes. countries do they have a nexus to, what products are they going to be using with your with your firm are they the higher risk products or are they kind of your basic you know debit account or savings accounts um what channels are they using are they using the digital channels um how are you onboarding them is it a non-face-to-face so a lot of our kind of you know fintechs mobile apps it's all non-face-to-face you don't go into a branch and meet someone have I covered all of them? I think I have. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. And then, of course, the, your, the results from your screening. How can I forget? Results <laughs> from your screening. So are they a PEP? Are they a politically exposed person? And then your negative news. So you do negative news screening as oh, well. Indeed. So what kind of negative news is coming out about that person? Have they been previously charged for a crime? Was that a white-collar crime or was mm. that kind of a non-financial crime? Were they incarcerated or were they not? Um, yes. Is it kind of meaningful, legitimate negative news, or is it just, you know, I wouldn't say fake news, but is it kind of less risky, these are people's opinions, as opposed to an actual charge or conviction against the individual. And all of those factors derive your low, medium, or high customer risk score. Mm -hmm. And there will be certain customers that automatically kind of get bumped up to a high risk. So politically exposed people, for example, customers resident in high risk countries. So you could look at the FATF gray listing or the EU um, list of non-cooperative jurisdictions. All of those will automatically kind of push you up to a high risk. Um, And then the businesses, if you think about businesses, they have the additional risk factor of um, what type of business is it? What industry are are they based in? And then when it comes to countries, it's okay, where are they incorporated versus where do they operate? So you could have like a UK import-export business, but they're actually operating in Africa and Mm -hmm. is mining. So then that's going to be quite, that's going to be a more high-risk company than your 
kind of merchant e-commerce business. That's right. Yeah. And I, I remember another one was um, sort of cash-based business. Yes, um, absolutely. Cash intensive. Yeah. You don't really, you know, I mean, of course you can get a receipt, but you don't know where the money's come oh, from. Oh, they're fudging those going. accounts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's it. So. And that adds the extra kind of risk of tax avoidance, mm. tax evasion. Uh, indeed. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's, uh, I, you know, we could dedicate a whole podcast to that one um, <laughs> because uh, it's a fascinating uh, but um but look one of the examples you gave um uh just then was in terms of opening an account you know digitally on the mobile and when you think about um let's say preventing anti-money laundering 20 years ago people needed to go to the bank mm-hmm. branch they needed to open up an appointment i mean this still happens in the uk today yeah. with some some providers whereas um particularly if we rewind sort of three years ago when fintechs saturated the market, you were able to open up bank accounts with multiple different providers or e-money institutions um, just by providing your ID in minutes. And then, you know, there are particular thresholds which, um, let's say, if you do a transaction of more than £10,000, it might raise a flag. But people were able to open up multiple accounts and then make small value transactions in a much faster time period than you know 20 years earlier when they had to go to the bank with all of their documents absolutely what's your view on sort of how that impacted anti-money laundering it just increases the risk Um, it's increased the risk um, for for fintechs and it's not even just about the way consumers are kind of making transactions it's the digital payment aspect of it is that real-time yes. um, payments that they can just instantaneously move money cross borders even um, and it's it's what fraudsters are exploiting so yeah. if you if you think about money mules for instance yes. um, you know individuals who literally are just given cash to then deposit into their accounts and then kind of like sent over to to somebody else mm. they're they're always going to kind of do those low value payments, low denominations, because they they know what the thresholds are that banks and fintechs set. And they're always, you know, they're tested. They'll do like maybe, you know, below the threshold, maybe tested above the threshold and come up with an excuse a rationale for where that money has come from sometimes they'll have so-called legitimate businesses and they'll say well it's you know come from my business especially if it's a cash intensive business yeah um and it's just yeah the, the the risks are increasing especially when it comes to fraud and i think that you know that has been recognized specifically in the u especially in the uk you've got like fraud now being classified as a national security threat yes um and it it costs fintechs and firms themselves a lot of money because you do have to then refund customers based on what type of fraud it was. Oh, wow. So, yeah. you know, if it's, you know, an authorized push payment fraud, for instance, um, you'll have refunds and chargebacks that you need to fulfill. Wow. Um, and, 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 you know, it varies. The U.S. is not so much that you need to refund your customers, but definitely within the U.K. and EU it is. Yeah. And that can be very costly for, very uh, costly. for the banks. Uh, very costly. And yeah. especially when you think about fintechs, um, they just don't have that money um, yes. to to be yeah. giving out. That's right. Yeah, and I mean it's tragic as well. You know, for people who may lose their life savings. You know, I mean we're, we're talking about oh no, the poor bank Absolutely. has to pay out the money, but actually, uh, you know, um, uh, for the individuals involved, it's yeah, very very sad. Yeah. yeah. So what I was that's that's a great point you picked up because we're we're now talking about fraud perpetrators. Yes. Yeah, the the ones who are perpetrating the fraud, and then the victims, and. Yeah, because of risk and compliance, aren't I? I always think, 
the worst. I was thinking of it from the kind of perpetrator angle where mm. you're having fraudsters as your customers yes. that are then making bogus kind of refund chargeback claims. You're yeah. then having to pay it out. And it's true when you think of it from the angle of a victim, especially the romance scams where there are large, significant sums of money that are yeah. being paid out, not like small, you know, low value payments. Um, that that's that that that's a victim that has impact on them, not just financial but also like emotional. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And look, I mean, we're talking about um, uh, yeah, you know, some pretty tragic stories. I mean, are there have there been any sort of funny compliance stories that, that you're able oh, to share? Oh, there's so many. I don't think I can share them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of a lot of a lot of good humorous ones, and I and I think the the kind of win you feel is. You know, when uh, when you are in a compliance and a financial service institution, when you are actually identifying those suspicious transactions or yes. you've actually identified um, a fraudster trying to open an account on your platform um, and you know that your systems are working, you know that your controls are working, like that's a good feeling. You yes, know? And, indeed. You know, that's yeah. where you're like, yes, you know, what I do is worth something. Yeah. Uh, and then from, you know, if you're on a vendor side and for, like my role now where it's, you know, you're a subject matter expert, it's just being able to direct that product strategy so that those products are actually identifying the different risks that different customers face because it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a really good moment to sort of transition into talking about the skills that are required for mm. the role. Um, so what type of sco- skills are required for a compliance role? I'd say only get into it if you're just like, you are thick-skinned. Yes. Um Compliance is not a place for sensitivities. Mm. It's, you know, you have to have thick skin. You have to be able to be challenged and also challenge other people's, yeah. other people. You need to make very quick decisions. Mm. Um, so the ability to be analytical, logical, yes. back that up by data because the people you are challenging are going to be senior management, people in C-suite, yes. product directors, Um and especially if you think about it from a product innovation angle, when you're creating a product that's come from just an idea, it's you're, it's, you're very precious about it. Like that is essentially your baby. Yes. And to have then someone say, look, no, this is riddled with risks and you, we're not going to let you go live with it, you know, feels very personal. Yeah. So you have to be able to understand the impact that your decision has on, on the business, be able mm-hmm. to collaborate with them, be able to draw them in. So uh, it's a lot, uh, a lot of negotiation skills are required. And these are things that you do kind of pick up along the way in your career. It's not necessary that you have to have them as soon as you get into compliance. Yeah. But what you do need to, you know, as soon as you hit the ground and you get into the door of a compliance or risk role is you need to be analytical. You need to have that data analytics skills, yes. coding skills nowadays as well, because yeah. a lot of the management information, the reports you are generating, you know, you need to run a code in order to get that from the from the data. Indeed. It's not like manual spreadsheets anymore unless you, you go work for a foreign bank, which is still <laughs> kind of doing manual spreadsheets. Yeah. Um, and then everything, and you have to be very good at communicating as well. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like a skill that's inherent. You have to come into the role with it. Uh, and you just, yeah, thick skinned, I can't emphasize enough because it it is a job where you are constantly um, getting pushback and yes. it's not easy to have these difficult conversations with people. Mm-hmm. 
and and you know, I mean, these these sort of roles have huge impacts um, for the financial institutions, the customers. Um, is there ever any sort of personal liability um, that a compliance professional would undertake? Yes. So if you are, you know, you're the money laundering reporting officer, which is a specific term in the in the UK and the in the US, it's your BSA reporting officer. Mm. That's personal liability right wow. there because you are personally responsible for ensuring that your firm is identifying detecting and preventing financial crime yeah. and that's a huge responsibility yes. to to have on your shoulders you also you know submit annual reports to the regulator so telling the regulator how many high risk customers you have mm-hmm. um, how many peps you have on your book how many customers you've offboarded so you need to make sure that that data you're reporting is accurate and oftentimes yeah. you're relying on other people you know who work for you to get you that information Indeed. so again you need to be a, a, an individual who's a leader who has a team that believes in you around you, a team that you can trust. Yes. And and I haven't seen many uh, cases of MLROs being fined. I think there was one previously, and it was, again, a foreign bank where the MLRO was fined for just kind of significant willful failures and wow. financial wow. control failures. But I think when you are a compliance person anyways, you take that personal liability very seriously because you also have the senior management regime where executives have personal liability as well for the the way business is conducted. But they don't take it that seriously. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, you know, there's always that sort of um, that culture of it'll be all right. Exactly. Don't worry about it. But actually... Yeah, in life, uh, you know. Don't tell me. Yeah. You're no evil, see no evil. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, but I, I think, yeah, like everything, the water always catches up, you know. It I does. think is the, uh, the key it thing does. there. Yeah. yeah. And Alia, earlier on in the conversation, you spoke about artificial intelligence. Um, uh, so what, what role do you see that playing in um, the, let's say, the reg tech space? Oh, a very key role because it's it's the ability for us to automate um, certain tasks for our clients. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about it from a screening angle, customers that are low risk that have kind of cleared all screening, you'd want to be able to kind of just automate their onboarding, not have alerts generated. Yeah. And even from transaction monitoring, machine learning is really key because you use historic customer data to build a picture of, okay, how does that customer transact to then identify what is suspicious or not. And we can go even further where if you think about all the different crimes that the different types, and there are 22 different financial crimes Mm -hmm. that then would lead to money laundering, they all have different typologies. So you can use machine learning and artificial intelligence to build out detectors so that when you are monitoring transactions, if they meet specific typologies or trends of a crime, you can then identify clients that, you know, this is not just money laundering, but this is potentially human trafficking. And this is potential sexual exploitation. And uh, in addition to that, you can build out, you can use machine learning and AI to build out what is known as knowledge graphs. Yes. So being able to identify the clusters of individuals or entities that are associated to each other to identify those organized crime groups. Indeed. And from a sanctions perspective, you can see how there's a sanctions nexus that might be you know, two, three hops removed, as it's called, um, and be able to visualize that. And 
there's a huge amounts of data that we're talking about and you know when it comes to things like organized crime you can uh, well i certainly would assume that they're using multiple different financial institutions yeah. so do the financial institutions and reg tech providers collaborate together in order to let's say color in the picture um uh by combining their information no 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 yeah because of the data privacy concerns yeah. over there there's not a lot of private private or private public sector um, information sharing as there should be yeah but then again you do we do need to be conscious of data privacy but if you're in the open banking space and you provide open banking to your customers then you do have a clearer picture of what's coming in and what's going out because you can see the different accounts a customer has so potentially in those situations you can leverage open banking to be able to see okay are are there suspicious patterns are they clusters of individuals um for an entity itself, you can then identify multiple different customers in your own customer base that mm. might have links together. Indeed. And I think, you know, from from a, you know, let's say a good customer um, point of view, open banking is actually really beneficial because if, you know, if a bank says, hey, like, show us your source of funds, you've got to download a statement, send it to the, yeah. uh, to the bank. Whereas with open banking, you just do it with a click. You're never going to get exactly. asked, you know, for that info. They might ask, tell us more about this transaction. Um, but uh, you know, as long as you can provide an invoice, um, uh, or you know, as long as actually that transaction isn't dodgy, you should yes. be all right. So, it's absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, there there are instances where like different financial firms will reach out to each other, but it's usually that reactive once they've identified suspicious transactions or activity, mm. you know, a compliance department might reach out to the other compliance department if they have a specific financial crime team yeah. to understand, okay, this is your customer that's remitted money to us. Can you just confirm, you know, more details about the customer? Mm. Um, and, and that's okay, but that's a very reactive as opposed to a proactive risk Indeed. identification. Indeed. Alia, we've, we've, we've covered tons today. It's been yeah. absolutely fantastic. <laughs> um, I wanted to see if there's any key takeaways um, that, you know, you'd like to share with, with the audience. Key takeaways is, ooh, put me on the spot. <laughs> I think the importance of compliance, of course, um, that it's not a tick box exercise, but it's it's vital to have embedded financial crime and also compliance risk processes in order to scale, in order to do business and enter emerging markets as well, and also use new technologies. And you can't rely on regulators to give you guidance for Mm -hmm. new types of emerging technologies. Like if you think of Web3, you know, they haven't even touched that, you know, we haven't even scratched the surface. But as a fintech or a startup or a tech company, that's there. Those are new digital technologies you're going to want to tap into because that's the what the future generation is going to use, and you yes. need to tap into what the future generation will do to have that market for, to have them consider you as a viable option. There, there comes a point where sometimes I think firms and financial services need to be able to educate regulators. Yes. So don't be afraid to use emerging technologies. Don't be afraid to analyze the data you have on your customer to build out more personalized products for them um, that suit their needs, of course. Um, And also don't be afraid to adopt AI and machine learning because that's the way you're going to scale and um, build out 
better products Indeed. for your customers. Indeed. Look, Alia, fantastic takeaways. Thank you so much. Thank you. A- anything else you want to add before no. we wrap up? No, I'm good. This was a pleasure. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much. Fantastic Thank podcast you. and great to see you. It's great to see you.